Hey everyone. Um, I'm also on the Lambda Lit Fest steering committee, so um, I just wanted to say thank you for coming to the first annual Lambda Lit Festival. Um, on the behalf of the steering committee, I'd like to thank you for joining us today for Indie Voices from Indie Presses and other indie experiences. Um, today is the final day of the program. Um, you can go to lambdalitfest.org to see all the cool stuff we did and the final event tonight, which is a party at Akbar. So you should feel free to check that out. I also would be remiss if I didn't thank, thank the LA Department of Cultural Affairs and the City of West Hollywood for their support um, and also all the sponsors that have helped us throughout this event and all year round. Uh, you can always visit lambdaliterary.org for more information. And with that, I guess I'll just get us started here. Um, by introducing everyone, we have Alex Espinoza, Wendy C. Ortiz, and Martin Poussin, and we're going to be doing short readings, and then we're going to get right into chatting about our experiences. So, Oh, also, feel free to use the hashtag LambdaLitFest if you want to put anything up. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's just start. Why don't we start over there and just work our way down this way? Oh. <laughs> but I hadn't decided what I'm going to read yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, Do you want me to go? Oh, well, you, it, you're okay. ready. So you All right. Go. Just, you just as I said I wasn't going to go first, I go first. Um, I'm going to do something I hardly ever do. Um, I'm going to read you a section of um, a novel that I just completed. Um... It is a story of a family of men, um, father, son, grandson, um, and um, I think, I guess one of the main um, uh, issues that I sort of want to deal with this book is the way in which um, oftentimes as, as men of color, um, the lengths that we have to go to in order to um, uh, make a living. And um, I'm going to read you a short section of um, one of my characters. His name is Julian. His grandfather was a uh, famous uh, Mexican wrestler, a luchador. And um, Julian um, steals a mask that belonged to his grandfather. They have it in a case. And what you need to know about Julian is that he is a student. He's a college student. And he... um, recently lost his job, so he's having to hustle um, to pay for his uh, education. And um, Julian is, how should I say, he's um, well-equipped. Let me just put it that way. (laughs) Um, So, I break the glass using nothing but my elbow. Some of the shards cling to my skin and leave abrasions that burn like little angry fires. I'm alive, I think. This proves it. I grab the mask from the case and two middle-aged ladies clutching water bottles stand and watch. Stop, one of them shouts. Call security, the other screams. Fuck them, I think. This here's mine. It's part of my history. Totemic. I repeat the word in my head a few times as I bolt for the door. It holds power. It's not meant to be displayed in a shitty case like this. I'm freeing it. And that's what I do. I destroy and I disrupt. I liberate and I cut things loose. We're meant to move and wander. I hop in my car and haul ass out of the parking lot. And I won't ever stop. I won't ever get caught. 
I zigzag through traffic, speeding around slow-moving trucks and vans. I cut drivers off, and they honk, and they give me the finger. My cell vibrates. A text message from one of my clients, a married guy named Drew. Come fuck me, he writes. I'll pay you the usual. I'm on the east side and Drew's in Santa Monica, and when I type his address into the map app that I use to whip through the city, a small map pops up. I'm the light blue arrow sitting still right there at an intersection of Anderson and Fourth in Boyle Heights. He's the green dot near the blue smudge with the faded gray words that spell out Pacific Ocean. And between us, there's an endless grid of lines representing streets and freeways, alleys and service roads. Some are yellow in spots, others throbbing bright red like arteries about to burst. His neighborhood is wide lawns and lush green grass. Its palm trees lined up along the curb, swaying in the salt-scented air. Its houses decorated with Talavera-tiled arched entryways and thick wooden doors with hinges that groan when they open. I park a few feet away from his two-story house. Walking across the lawn, I try to act cool, like I belong. I'm in a pair of baggy jeans and a black tank top. I have a shaved head, and I'm tattooed. And in broad daylight, anyone can see me. Here, I'm suspicious. I rehearse in my head what I'll say if a black and white rolls up. I'm lost, officer. My car stalled, officer. No, I'm not carrying any weapons or drugs, officer. Yes, you can search my car, officer. I stroll up to the driveway, all slow and natural. Inside, though, I'm relieved to have cleared the few feet from my car to his front door without attracting any attention. He's in a dress shirt and tie, and when he answers, there's stubble along his chin and his jawline. And I rub it with my palm, and he breathes deep. I love when your fingers smell like tobacco, he says. The walls of the hallway are cool to the touch, Pictures crowd the top of a small side table, his daughter holding a baseball bat, his wife, Meredith or Mercedes or Michaelia, some white lady name like that, with her arms around an old woman wearing a big hat and too much jewelry. Drew crouching next to a black lab. Walking past the bathroom, I hear a low, constant hiss coming from the toilet, and a pair of lace curtains sway in the breeze, and I can smell the ocean. And I imagine boats bobbing along the water and try listening for the screech of seagulls drifting in the sky. Drew knows the drill. From his wallet, he takes out some bills and sets them on the nightstand next to the bed he shares with his wife. I undress and I lie down, the sheets soft against my back, the pillows perfumed up by the scent of dryer sheets. He unzips his slacks and he pulls them down, but he keeps his dress shirt and his tie on. The metal clasps of his garters graze my bare thighs, and instantly I'm hard. That's how mine works. It's automatic, like turning the power switch on. He straddles me, and we go at it. I have fucked guys in supply closets, target bathroom stalls, airport bathrooms, gas station bathrooms, department store dressing rooms, empty fields along secluded roads, adult bookstores with flimsy plywood walls where tokens get lodged inside coin slots. Countless hotel rooms, so many hotel rooms, rest stops beneath a narrow stairwell, a sleazy motel where a biker high on meth busted down the door and rammed his fist through the off-brand television set, a basement, a storage shed, the cab of a big rig truck, on the couch next to a client's wife. She was passed out from a combination of oxycodone and booze, and he was on all fours taking it from me, and he kept reaching up to slap her on the face. See this, he grunted. See what you've driven me to? 
The office of a college professor, a locker room on rooftops, balconies, dark movie theaters with two, three, ten other guys in swimming pools, jacuzzis, tennis courts, construction sites, alleys, parks, on the bench, in an empty funeral parlor, up in a hayloft, abandoned buildings, an art gallery, a radio station, a television station, a warehouse, an Indian casino, a fancy resort, the kitchen of a five-star restaurant in Beverly Hills, a football stadium, a basketball court, the dugout of a baseball field, a dance studio, a classroom, while swimming naked in a river, on a yacht, on the hood of a car, inside a jail cell, against the trunk of a tree, at a birthday party, at a funeral, a graduation ceremony, yes, I said a funeral, a wedding, at a major intersection, inside an elevator, a farmhouse, in the snow, in the heat, during a lightning storm, in the middle of an earthquake, a few feet away from a fast-moving fire, on a bus, on a train, in a parked car, in an empty lot, a few feet from a hospital, or inside an ugly cream-colored building, People were fighting to stay alive, and babies were just coming into being. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Um, I'm just going to read a few excerpts from my latest book, Bruja, which is here for sale. This is a dreamoir, meaning that it's a memoir of dreams. Written in, like, basically about 2000 and. 2002 to 2005. I drove a black truck to visit Olympia. I had cats with me. I parked outside the garage of the first place I ever mud wrestled, and when I opened the door of the truck, the cats kind of spilled out. The cats weren't mine, and I panicked. After unloading some containers of spoiled food, pasta, fruit, lentils, a bunch of cats caroused all around my feet. I was overwhelmed trying to figure out which one was the one I was missing. Some had little tiny slips of paper on the napes of their necks where you hold them when you want them to submit to the power of the mother cat. I saw numbers and some lettering on them, but none of it told me which cat was which. They all looked exactly alike. When I found the right one, I got him into the truck cab while all the others continued brushing against my feet and calves. The United States had closed all of its borders. I was in a hotel room when I found out on the East Coast near the Canadian border. There was a government man in a blue suit charged with calming large crowds of people. He told us that we could not leave the country and, in fact, we could not go anywhere but the immediate area. The crowd protested amongst itself. We could not believe this turn of events. I said aloud, Perhaps we can go underwater and declare water sovereign. I was half joking. At the Canadian border, a woman read a prepared statement telling us why we could not cross. It was clear from the way she held her mouth tensely as she read that she had not written it herself. A number of us in the crowd protested her outright. In the small swell of panic, I contemplated what I would do, set fires, burn my way out of the country. I didn't realize I had a serious cut in the bottom of my foot until I walked down the carpeted stairs of the unfamiliar house. I left a trail of thick blood in my wake. I sat down in a chair and looked at the bottom of my foot. In the most tender part was a gash, and the blood wouldn't stop flowing. Sharon Olds helped me clean up the cut. Her manner was gentle, mothering. 
I grimaced and squealed in her hands with the feel of the liquid she used stinging my open wound. I gave birth to a baby girl. I was at my mother's house. I was dressed in a white half-slip and long-sleeved white silk shirt. A cat asked me if I would nurse her. I knew it was weird. I looked around. I could find a private place. I said yes. In my childhood bedroom, I situated the cat on one breast and the little girl on the other. I called the little girl Lupita. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to read from uh, Black Sheep Boy, which is uh, a little queer book of horror. It's about as dark as the cover is. And, uh, there are 13 stories that stand alone and also interlock. Uh, I'll read one excerpt, maybe two. I'll watch myself. I, uh, but maybe because I'm a writer, I always want to redo things. And I was at a, a panel yesterday, the morning plenary uh, with Justin Torres, and there was a question at the end that's been eating at me for about ever since, right? And so I wanted to read a section of the book where there'd be something defiant and also deviant to make to illustrate what queerness might be and something sexual as well. But then I also thought I should get something Cajun in here because the book is about two kinds of queer, uh, the cultural queer and the sexual queer, and two kinds of exiles, right? Because they're both exiled, the Cajuns, uh, from their original place and the queers from their, from their birthplace. Uh, both also are expected to act like a, a kind of a minstrel in our culture, right? Mm. Uh, a kind of a comic, um, an entertainer. So I try to flip that uh, with the horror and the fantasy that run through the book. Uh, so this, uh, since Mardi Gras just happened, I thought I'd read a little section of a Mardi Gras story. Uh, on this one day, and uh, this is Alter Boy, on this one day, in this one festival, everyone was someone else. The monks were camouflage farmers, and the nuns, it turned out, were just boys in costume. Everyone could laugh at what they were not. Everyone could gawk at the made-up faces, but no one, not one Mardi Gras reveler in the whole town looked straight ahead at the fact that they were dancing on a mass grave, marching a parade right over the dead ground of a phantom people. In the Catholic Church, death calls for last rites and a host of ministrations, but at Mardi Gras, even the altar boy was drunk and the priest was absent without leave, so everyone kept dancing and the fiddles kept sawing the air, muffling the laughter of the two teenagers as they hog-tied my arms and slid lard over my body. <laughs> One of them kept chugging back a bladder of beer while another dragged his foot into the dirt like a pony gaming for a race. They'd spotted me in a booth trying on a plastic tiara. Little queen, they shouted in unison, little fairy. Both were from Ascension, from Sacred Heart. Two of the older boys at the camp, young men, the priest called them, they'd been expelled from the same high school and had formed their own scouts, the wild boars. For Mardi Gras, they wore the choir dress of altar boys, each with a black cassock and a red sash. But at Redeemer, they wore football jerseys and lace-up pants even off the field. They grunted in the halls and chased sissy boys like me into corners and stalls. When they tugged at their lace crotch, I should have turned my head, but my eyes roamed again and again, and my wishes rose up like flames. I wished for the touch of another boy, it's true, even at nine, even at camp. 
and the wild boars delivered that wish every time they cornered me. Once that summer they chased me into a watery bog, then yanked down my wet trousers all the way down to my ankles while I turned crawfish red. On Mardi Gras day, though, they skipped the baptism and went straight for another sacrament. While my eyes flipped into my head, they delivered hard punches to my chest, hard jabs at my face, and stinging gobs of spit. The lard they smeared on me ran down like limbs in streaks, like greasy ribbons, as they started calling animal names in my ear. My legs began to buckle and my lungs emptied out. Then the sky opened up and a black cloud of rain fell over us. I went tearing out of their carnival tent toward the streets of town. The grease seemed to speed me through the air as I pulled farther and farther away from the wild boars. But their grunts were echoed by others who spotted that tiara still on my head and a tassel of feathers trailing my feet. The grunts rose to shouts and roars and fiery words. Papa stood on the sidewalk behind Mama, his hands covering his face while she lifted up her eyes and her spirit fingers in prayer. Any other boy might have run in their direction, might have repented in a white hot flash, but my legs wouldn't move that way and my arms were still bound behind my back. So I ran right past my parents, right past the crowd of revelers in the street, and right to the top of the marble steps of the church where I waited for my wings, waited for my capitaine, waited for the whole of Carnival to end in ash. I don't think I have enough time to read the sexy part, so I'll just <laughs> leave you right there. Thank you. Hey guys, um, so I'm going to read from my new novel, uh, The Show House. It's about two very different families in Orlando, Florida that kind of find their lives entwined through a serial killer. Um, you don't need to know much for this scene, just that one of the characters, Layla, has just found out that her brother is seeing this guy, um, and that kind of sets her into thinking. The closest she's come to a serious relationship was the year she spent fooling around with a married guy. And even that ended three years ago. In her memory, Sean appears with sly, downcast eyes and lips parted just enough to allow a seductive peak of his tongue. A former high school and intramural athlete, when they met, he was settling into the body he'd likely carry through to middle age, neither in shape nor overweight, but bearing shades of both. A transitional body. He captured her attention immediately despite the inconvenient fact of his marriage, or perhaps because of it. He was enigmatic and she liked that. She knew his name, his age, 28, her age now, and his preferred sexual positions. Little else was forthcoming. He knew nothing about her beyond her phone number, her address, and that she was willing. Nor did he seem interested in learning more. At the start of their affair, she regularly inquired about his tastes and opinions, his profession and aspirations, in short, his life. But he gingerly deflected her queries. What little he did offer came only under duress, which is how she came to learn the bit about his athletic past. His aptitude for deflection outpaced her appetite for hectoring and, fearing above all breaking the illusion that she was an unsentimental girl who preferred casual hookups to relationships, she eventually abandoned her efforts, reconciling with the fundamentally myster fundamental mystery of him. Clearly, privacy figured prominently in the hierarchy of his desires. His reasons simply remained beyond the scope of their relationship. 
Despite her resolve to not dig into his past, the tension remained between them. Her fundamental nature demanded an intimacy he refused to supply, and that imbalance excited him. Their most passionate trysts occurred when he'd show up at her door unannounced in the middle of the night after she'd worked a long shift and, he was looking, and she was looking forward to sleep. I'm outside, he'd say, his voice oozing through the speaker on her phone. I'm coming in. A month into the relationship, he'd asked for a key to her house for this express purpose. It was that kind of a relationship. She'd listen, uh, she'd listen, heart racing, as the front door opened and shut, followed by his quick steps across the living room. Waiting under the covers, she struggled with conflicting desires, wishing that she'd had some notice and could have tidied up before he arrived, but also delighting in the fact that she hadn't. She liked to imagine herself as the kind of person who held nothing back from her lover. This is my mess. Take it or leave it. I don't care one way or another. But, of course, she was the exact opposite kind of lover. She did care. She cared a great deal. From the bedroom door, he'd locked eyes on her, his stare seeing right through her even in the darkness. If he was an enigma, then she was common and plain as conventional wisdom. It's late, she'd say, and he'd smirk and grunt, "Mm mm-hmm. Then he was on top of her, and she felt her body responding to his touch, rushing away from her. More than once, she came before him, her body drawing him in deeper until he finished. Do you have to get back to your wife, she'd asked after. He'd lick the sweat off her neck and then get up and dress. I'll see you again soon. Wear black panties. Then he'd be gone, and she'd spend the next however many nights sleeping in nothing but black panties, waiting for him to return. So I guess we should probably start off by maybe talking a little bit about each of our journeys to publishing um, and how we maybe promote our stuff uh, in this indie world. Do you guys want to, Wendy, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So I've had a sort of roundabout um, trip through uh, publishing. And so to give you the sort of shortened version of it, I will start by saying that it was like I think 2012 that I had a an essay appear in the Modern Love column in the New York Times. And what I learned from that experience is that when you publish an essay like that, the next day agents start calling you immediately and they're like, "Where's the book? Can we have the book?" And I did not have a book that was about that column, but I had my first I had a draft of my first book. Um, excavation and I was like well I don't have this book I have this book and um, to sort of make this very short I did end up with an agent who tried to sell excavation which kept getting all of these fabulous like we love this this is so dark this is so unusual the writing is beautiful but we don't know how we would market this Um, and it is it it is a difficult it does have difficult content so um, at the same time that all of this was happening, I reached out to a local independent press, writ large press, about an entirely different manuscript. So while everything was kind of happening for excavation, I had already reached out to this press, whom I respected greatly. They were doing all of these cool projects in Los Angeles. They still are. Um, they're doing one this summer that's called 90 by 90, very focused on like just literary stuff happening like out in the streets and people being a part of it and organizing things themselves. 
I admired them so much I did not even consider another, another press for this other book which became Hollywood Notebook. I wanted a local independent press. I admired them. They said yes we would like to publish this and that was supposed to be my first book but because of small publishing and independent presses things can get pushed back so what ended up happening was Excavation became my first book because when my agent could not sell it um, I had a another person express interest and he is a small independent publisher um, Kevin Samsel of Future Tense Books he reached out to me after reading an essay of mine that encapsulated what excavation was about he reached out to me and said hey do you have something full length that I can look at and I said well my agent's been trying to sell this book here's the feedback we've gotten he said let me take a look at it and the beauty of small press is that he could make something happen immediately. So, like, he read it in July of 2013. In October, he said, I'd like to publish this next summer. And I was like, oh, my God, now we're, like, this is a fast track, and oh, my gosh, this is amazing, which is not the experience that everybody has, but it's more possible with, with small press and independent press. So, um, so Excavation became my first book in 2014. Um, Hollywood Notebook was pushed to 2015, and that was published by local Writ Large Press. And um, Writ Large Press. Um, and so at, at that point, I was in a good position, and I had a third independent publisher, um, CCM, they contacted me and said, do you have anything for us to look at? And they're known for innovative fiction. I'm sort of getting known as a memoirist. So it was really weird to have somebody contact me and say, "Are you, you know, do you have anything innovative fiction? And I was like, actually, I've been sitting on this manuscript for a while um, that doesn't really have a good category. And this is the other beauty of small press is that this is like, this is so hard to categorize for people. Like, um, it can be considered fiction for sure, because dreams obviously do not happen. Yet at the same time, to me, this happened. This was the life that I was living at night um, that was parallel to what I was writing in Hollywood Notebook. So to me, it was very real. So we call it, that's why we call it a dream war. Um, so CCM reached out to me and said, hey, do you have something? I said, well, I have this thing. I definitely do not think any big publisher is going to be interested in this. And he loved it and was like right on board, com completely understood what I was going for with this book. And so that's how I ended up with my third book. And each of them have been published with these small presses that do so much. And I'm sure we'll talk more about what small presses can do for you and what you do for them. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But that's the, the short version of the three books. What's CCM's Civil coping mechanisms. <laughs> I'm not only deviant and defiant, I also like to defer. I'm interested in hearing about your your path to indie publishing, and then I'll tell you mine. Wait, you're looking at me. Yes, right? okay. yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm with the... My first two books were published by um, a very indie press. Called? Random House. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, was, I, I had my first two books published by, you know, a major uh, New York uh, a press, um, and, um, you know, my experience... God, I feel so old. My first novel came out in 2007. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a very different time, I think, in publishing. Um, you know, Amazon, uh, Amazon wasn't an Amazon quite yet. I mean, they weren't selling, like, Pilates 
um, uh, uh, equipment and um, like stakes that you can get from. Um, they were, um, you know, it was still starting out, but like Barnes and Noble and Borders were huge, and so I, I sort of came up at a time when you know those big box bookstores were still very prevalent, and and indie bookstores. Um, were you know just sort of out there chugging along and and I think now it's it's kind of unique to see that it's kind of almost the opposite you know you drive by these giant buildings uh, with old signs that say borders or Barnes and Noble fading um, and then you've got bookstores like Skylight that have been here for decades and I remember I had one of my first readings here at Skylight I think Noel introduced me um, <laughs> um, you know my I mean my road to publishing you know I, you gotta understand like I ended up you know, I was the week before I started graduate school. I was folding T-shirts at the mall. I used to work at Hot Topic. <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, people usually make that face. Like <laughs> we worked there. I was in Goth though, um, and you know, I ended up. I mean, I ended up in this really, this really, really, you know, competitive MFA program. You know, I was the only, you know, person that looked like me, you know, tattooed and with big hoop earrings. I walked in on the first day wearing a backwards baseball cap and um, baggy dickies and I think my 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 peers were like, Who the fuck are you? Like who let this guy in? <laughs> they really didn't know what to do with me. And and so my you know my experience I guess has always been, you know, in those spaces as sort of an outsider. Um, and, you know, I ended up landing a, a, a great literary agent at a time when I, I really wasn't looking for a literary agent. I was at a um, writer's conference, and I had gone to um, two writer's conferences in two weeks. Don't ever do that. <laughs> I strongly recommend that you, unless you, you, know, you take your, your um, uh, antidepressants with you, you have to do that. <laughs> um, your anti-anxiety medication. I was at two writer's conferences, and, and by the time I got to the second one, um, <clears throat> there was an agent there. And you know, we had, a couple of us had lunch with her, and she was asking us what we were working on, and she got to me, and she's like, what are you working on? And this is my first book. And I was like, I was just so out of it. And I was so jaded. Like I feel right now because of the damn time change. I was just like, you know, I'm writing this book about a botanica. Do you know what a botanica is? And she's like, no. I'm like, of course you don't. It's this shop with, you know, spells and teas and herbs. And, blah, blah, blah. and you know, I was so dismissive and so checked out because I was so tired. And right after the meeting, she sort of came up to me and was like, can I have your card? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and, and this person just kept hounding me. Um, but I was determined to try to make my book as good as possible. Um, and that's sort of how I ended up getting published. And when she contacted me and said she was sending it out and everyone was interested, I was like, well, who do you mean by everyone? And then she was telling me, and I was like, really? I didn't, I didn't realize I was writing that. So, you know, but as far as, like, indie presses go, you know, I think that there's something to be said about publishing with a big press versus publishing with a small press. When, I, when my book came out, my editor was editing Charles Frazier. Um, and she'd worked with, you know, E.L. Doctorow um, and Norman Mailer. Like, I was competing with Norman Mailer. I think we know who's going to win, right? So, you know, I think that one of the tricks with working with a big press is that you do have to find, you find yourself sort of fighting for attention. If you're like the underdog like me, you find yourself 
fighting for attention, fighting for your editor's attention in a way that I think small presses have the advantage of really cultivating uh, the voices of the writers that they're working with. Like, I love the work that Unnamed Press does, and I also love the books that Counterpoint puts out. The book that, I, I, that I'm working on right now, I can tell you right now, it's not going to be a big press book because there's too much sex. <laughs> not that big presses aren't shy about sex, but, you know, I, I just... Um, I think that um, the realities of the publishing world... Heterosex. Heterosex. That's true. Um, I think the reality of the publishing world is changing now. And and you're seeing more a trend towards the sort of indie upstart. uh, Those voices that, that, you know... um, historically have been marginalized and I think that that it's opening up in such a way that that now you know there's an allowance for uh, voices that are different that are not mainstream voices that are that are rough and that are aren't afraid of you know of getting dirty um, and you know I'm hoping that my next book finds a place in a in a press that's going to be willing to let me do whatever the hell I want not that random house didn't but it's different I want to actually jump in a little bit and um, go back to something that you said, Wendy, about difficulty categorizing books. I think that's something that people often overlook when they're um, either starting out with the first book and like you know hoping to get the big five publisher um, or really any kind of placement. It's if you've written a book that isn't easily marketable or easily easily categorized, you're going to have a hard time getting an agent, getting uh, getting the book published at a big guy. Um, that happened with me with um, my book, The Show House, that Unnamed was very good about taking on books that don't fit like a particular sort of genre. And mine kind of goes across the genres a little bit. It's It's a mystery, but a mystery doesn't have a whole lot of mystery. It's like a serial killer book, but it's really about families. So it kind of, it's one of those ways that small presses are great because they will work with you on how best to market your book, how best to get the story out there and put you in conversation with other authors that maybe have been defined a certain way, but actually, you know, show the broadness of everyone's work. And Small presses are great for that kind of thing. I assume Rare Bird does the same thing. Um, from what I've, I've chatted with them about, uh, yeah. Uh, and I want to thank Rare Bird. Uh, hardest working woman in the publishing industry here in LA is Julia Callahan. Uh, uh, editing, proofreading, marketing, promotion, booking events, and uh, so intimately working with authors that she will sometimes share a room with them at the Roadrunner in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> uh, also a, a leader, I think, of white wine of some sort. Yeah. Uh, so thank you to Red Bird. Thank you to uh, Unnamed Press for putting together the panel. And to Skylight Books, uh, I had my book launch here, and I was really grateful it was a, uh, a fantastic event. I'm happy to be back. The question of categorization is is what we were just on, right? So if if I looked at mine, I could see how a, um, one of the big five would not know what to do with this because the subjects include um, gays, fiction, uh, Louisiana fiction, Bayou fiction, Cajuns fiction, buildings Roman, I can never say that properly, magic realism. I think we could have put horror and fantasy on there too and still not be done with it. Uh, and I think we always like have multiple answers for what is the book. Uh, the I'll work backwards. So the great part about working with Rare Bird is they weren't worried about categorizing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had complete freedom with it. I'd even 
in the hopes of having some next edition done some other work on the afterward, right? I just keep at it, I can't let go. And they let me work on it until the last minute and took it out of my hands. Uh, there was never a question of um, uh, driving, uh, there was never a question of domesticating the queer sexuality in this book. There was never a question of trying to translate or explain the Cajun queerness of the book either. So I'm really grateful for that. And the event that we had here at Skylight was Fantastic because it was well attended. I don't know, 75 or, or more people. It was warm, it was friendly, it was engaging. People were interesting to talk to. Now, doubling all the way back to, to where I started, I um, so uh, I have a lot of dirty secrets. One is like Wendy, uh, well, here's my dirty secret. I got an MFA in nonfiction, <laughs> not in fiction. Same. And uh, I would have gone for poetry, but Richard Howard wouldn't let me. So I was working on, if you have a dreamoir, I was working on a memoir, I'll say. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, right. And uh, Alex, I was, uh, I was back in the early aughts, uh, coming out of grad school, felt really thrilled um, after getting purpled in grad school for my odd language, for my um, overripe metaphors, for my weird musicality. Uh, really, that was driven out of me in my grad program. So I wrote these simple, clean little sentences. And this book then went to a major house, and the major house bought it. That was Riverhead. But then when they bought it, we had this meeting and they said, oh, we don't like all this other part after the marriage. So the, the first part is the marriage of a heterosexual couple that's on the rocks. And then this weird story about uh, a little boy. And they didn't want that part. Mm. Uh, and they said, well, maybe if the parents told that part. Or, I mean, they started pitching out several ideas. And I thought, fuck it, no. I'll give you the straight book you want. And so I wrote No Place Louisiana. And uh, the big house... Uh, did that, right? I mean, they, they move in in that way. They um, attempt to uh, normalize the content of the book and to make it universal so that it then is easily marketable, right? It was a, a book of Southern Gothic fiction. There you go, right? There's, there's no other question about how to categorize it. It was a purse-sized book, and although it was a, a Rashomon story, a he-said-she-said husband-and-wife story, they only put the woman and the daughter on the cover, so it was clearly a woman's book, yeah. right? And then it was reviewed as such. Now, it was widely reviewed, and they sent me on a book tour. But... Uh, 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 Oh, they also made me change the ending because they thought it was too crazy. So they sent me on the book tour, and then, and then that's it. Like, killed, right? You're quickly remaindered if it doesn't become a bestseller. So your book is no longer in print. And I would go on a book tour, but I went to Barnes & Noble, where there's just the bookstore owner and you maybe, and they're apologizing because people don't really show up at those stores anyway. And, and, and then I, I, I thought, the hell with that. I'm not doing another book that way, even though my agent said, write the sequel, right? Write the sequel to No Place. We'll sell that. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So instead I wrote poetry. And the poetry let me get really strange again, let my voice come out again. My other dirty secret, as I've joked before, is that I, I'm, uh, um, as a Bayou boy, I, I really wanted to be the punk rock Barbra Streisand. So <laughs> in Sugar, I got to be the punk rock Barbra Streisand. And then I took 13 years to write these stories one by one because I wanted them each to stand alone. And when I was done 
and my agent, the same agent, tried to go to the big houses, the question was categorization. So it, it does come full circle. And it was really hard to convince them that there was one way to sell this. And so I was really happy to find a home at Rare Bird and really happy when I do bookstore appearances to be at indie bookstores. Uh, and I'll, I'll just end with this. So I already want to redo my reading uh, because in the front row, you can't see it, is a guy with a Tom of Finland t-shirt, <laughs> Tom of Finland tattoo, and boots. So now I wish that I read the story that they definitely would, have, would not have published at Riverhead. That's the one about uh, the boy uh, fucking a skinwalker. So I would have read that one, but I can't redo it. You'll have to read a skinwalker. Yeah, <laughs> skinwalker. A ship shifter. A shapeshifter. Yeah. That's. And I, I have to say, I was worried about reading the section of my character having sex with a married man. <laughs> can Can I just say that on the subject of content, um, I, what I neglected to mention um, about my first book and why all of these people were responding to it the way that they were responding to it is because um, basically it's the story of between the ages of 13 to 18 um, my teacher one of my teachers, my English teacher in junior high initiated a sexual relationship with me I knew that if I were to you know like get lucky and get a big you know big publisher I knew that it would be a lot tougher to sell, to like market the book the way that I imagined marketing it. I was fearful of them turning, like who knows what the cover would have looked like of that book. Um, I imagined all of the worst things, like how are they going to make this really salacious? Are they going to turn this into like a weird Lolita story? Are they going to, you know, what could they possibly do? They would, they, they're going to do everything that they can to make money. So that fear lived within me as much as I was like still wanting you know yes of course I want a big publisher in the end I was really happy that I had the control that I had with my small press because I was able to choose a cover I was able to be direct and say this is what I want this is how I want to market it if I ever saw any copy that went out by my publisher that I felt didn't really represent the book accurately because it's super you want to be accurate when you're describing this type of story people get really upset when they hear what it's about um, anytime I saw something that felt slightly inaccurate word choice thing I told him and he would change it I'm not sure that any of that would have happened had I been with a big publisher so that was another big advantage for that per particular book Absolutely. yeah, yeah. It, it, they, they would not have allowed those words I had, I had words just were wholly excised out of my manuscript with Riverhead and that didn't happen at all with Rare Bird I mean yeah. no uh, I you know thinking about indie I I believe part of this, you know, you can see indie as DIY. That's one reason, one way to see indie or to read indie. But indie also can mean really independent, and that's counter to any any mainstream notion. And I think that's part of what indie publishing allows, and indie bookstores as well. And then what you're writing toward, and what you're working with, both in the house, the, the press itself, and also the bookstores, is a kind of writing, a kind of storytelling a kind of art that is uh, that doesn't belong to everyone in general because I, I believe that any work of art any story that belongs to everyone in general does not belong to someone 
in particular. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get at Skylight, that's what you get at Unnamed or Rare Bird. You get community, you get particular communities, specific uh, readers and writers, and mm -hmm. that's part of the thrill, no matter what the identity uh, of any of his is in the end, right? It's that kind of specific mm -hmm. connection. It's a humanizing influence that pushes against the influences that are grander and, and, and more mainstream, which I think ultimately are dehumanizing, really, right? Mm -hmm. um, to assimilate, to conform, to, to, you know, to have a monolithic single story and all of us rush in to fit that mold because that's marketable. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is the freedom that we get with indie presses, really. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a lot yesterday at the, at the panels um, at Barnsdale that just that, that like it's through getting that really specific character that you actually tap into the universal experiences mm -hmm. of empathy and all that kind of stuff. So I think your point is very good about that, that, you know, tell your weird story, tell get it as specific as you can because that's what's going to excite people and it's also counterintuitively what's going to unlock that like universal experience for people. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, you know I, my, my contract with Random House is, is up. So I've, I've fulfilled my contract, so I'm, I feel like I'm back on the dating scene, and, and um, my, my status is indie curious. <laughs> you know, like I'm indie curious now. Um, but, you know, I, I do, I mean, I do have to say, I did, you know, I didn't really have a problem in terms of what my editor um, wanted out of me. You know, we didn't have these awkward conversations about, like, well, you know, make, make the drag queen, you know, I don't know, a truck driver or, you know, make, you know, the math addict who's sort of, you know, um, bi-curious, you know, uh, a husband with, you know, two kids and, and a wife. Um, um, there wasn't any of that, but, but there was one instance where um, they sent me a mock-up of the cover of the first book, um, and I knew I was in trouble when I didn't even open the, the attachment but this is from one of the art designers at Random House and he said you know we we want to um, uh, uh, we want it to be in warm Mexican colors and I was like what the fuck does that mean um, and they sent me something that was just awful it was absolutely terrible and you know I contacted my agent and I was like this is a terrible cover and she said, yeah, I kind of agree. And, and so she said, well, you're going to have to write them and tell them. So I spent the weekend like crafting a really polite email. Like, this really sucks. It's a really terrible cover. And, um, and then on Monday I sent it. And, you know, I was surprised. And my, my editor said, okay, you know, we see your point. We're going to go back to the drawing board. I, I think that my relationship with my editor at Random House is really fantastic. The thing that I that I did find that was, was difficult was, um, uh, you know, my, my piece of the pie. Like, it's a really big pie, right? And there are, really, there are writers around that table with really big appetites, right? And, and I was constantly having to, like, you know, stake my claim. Um, and, and, and also my second book came out at a really awkward time. It was when Random House gobbled up Penguin. And it was just, there was a lot of shuffling going on over there. And you know, my, my, my publicist left, and then I got another publicist, and then that publicist left, and, you know, there was all this shuffling about, and I think my second book really got lost in that, and, and it's, you know, it was really unfortunate. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, my, my, 
my experience with with my publisher um, for the most part was good. The problem I think that I found was always trying to to find my place within that sort of larger mechanism. Um, and I think that indie you know indie presses have the advantage of like I said really cultivating close relationships with their authors. Um, that now as a writer now that I've you know I have two books under me and I have a third that I just finished. You know I'm starting to see the value in that. Right, and I think that in graduate school you're taught if you come from an MFA program you're taught like you know go for the you know big press or you know you want the big agent you want the big that and and I think when there's ye- when you have some years on you you start to see your career as a writer differently um, and I think that's where I am right now um, so I'm glad I had that experience with with my with my experience with Random House but I really do see the value also in what indie presses are doing and I appreciate it. Maybe it's the right time to bring a few clouds in. Oh, yeah. The rainbow. Uh, I, yesterday, I kept thinking about the word queer. Right, queer is to counter. Right, uh, and so uh, just to counter a little bit of the thesis that I laid out, which is true, but also true, both and also true, is that the little houses don't have much money. So you're not going to get a national book tour. Little houses sometimes have trouble commanding attention from the major, um, the major reviewers, right? Uh, major newspapers, uh, and that's difficult if your book isn't being uh, reviewed widely to do more uh, with it from there. Uh, the, the little houses also require you really to become a lot more involved in promotion. I didn't do anything with promotion for Riverhead. I just followed orders, right? I just mm-hmm. went where they said and did what they said and you know with with my with my house I'm in, involved in the promotional aspects of it uh, more than just um, you know attending events and reading but also having a website and doing Twitter things are anathema to me it's not my language I'm uncomfortable I don't think I'm very good at it and I, I think uh, but f- for others that part of it can be exciting but you should just know that as well right there there are all the ways in which it can enable but there are the ways in which you have to get involved. Indie means really putting your individual self in it as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I see the time sign. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. I think, yeah, let's see. We've been talking for a while. Maybe you guys have some questions about the process. Or... All right, yeah. Um, so you mentioned how doing something with an indie press can kind of feel DIY. Not, not in a good yeah. way, but I'm curious... I guess what the difference between like doing something really indie and self-publishing and kind of the difference between like a printing press or like a publishing press if there's a difference like if anyone if that makes sense yeah well there yeah there are great differences and then the ground the turf the ground is shifting underneath our feet right now I'm in my in my English department I'm actively uh, advocating for uh, faculty that we're hiring uh, who are self-publishing that we see that as a legitimate way of putting out creative work. My examples always are uh, uh, Walt Whitman, right, uh, who not only self-published but also 
uh, wrote the first <laughs> praise for his own book, right? The first blurb he penned, <laughs> right? And then you can go all the way uh, to the recent past with Kelly Link, whose first book, I mean, she came out of an MFA program. She could have gone the New York route, traditional, but she didn't want to. She put her first book out on Creative Commons. It was free and accessible online, but she got Jonathan Lethem to read it. He offered to blurb it so she could go to Big House, and she said, screw that. I'm forming my own press, Small Beer Press, with my husband in North Carolina and look at where Kelly Link is at now. So uh, you should know that there is a lot of bias, there is a lot of snobbery in academia, in the literary realm, uh, in regard to self-publishing. It was once called vanity publishing, right? But I, I do think that that is evolving and changing and there are figures that are really respectable. Uh, uh, respectable is not, I hate that, no, not, that's not what I mean. Who are writing great stories who are writing great stories and deserve to be heard, and who cares that they are the ones uh, issuing it, right? Um, so if I could just say for a moment about going back to the clouds, one of the things that I had no idea about, and frankly, I feel like I could have learned more about on my own, um, and I didn't really learn until my third book was um, about distribution. Distribution is not something, you know, that like somebody in a big publishing situation has to give a shit about, but I have to give a shit about it because as I learned, my first um, book has good distribution, meaning that bookstores can actually um, you know, get them in quantity and sell them easily. Um, they're not, bookstores can also, they're, they're like not waiting for months to be reimbursed. It's, it, it depends on the, how big the distributor is. Um, my second book has like literally zero distribution. I don't know how anybody gets it at this point. I'm fine with that. It's just like, okay, there's going to be some weird, like a, hopefully a cult book at some point because it's hard to get. I'm shocked that it, there are four copies here today. I'm seriously shocked because it's so hard to get. I didn't have it for a year. So, um, and people would tell me how hard it was to get. So there's no distribution. So it's like my quiet, weird child that like nobody's going to notice. And then my third book, when I signed the contract, at the time, my publisher was like, I'm hoping that by next year we're going to be distributed through consortium, which in my limited knowledge was like, okay, that's more distribution, great. Well, it's really expensive for a small press to put up the money to belong to something like consortium. So now he's in talks with a different smaller than consortium, but still another distributor, which would make things a lot easier. I thought that by my third book, I wasn't necessarily going to have to be like carrying them in my car, selling them by hand all the time, but that is untrue. I am still doing that because of distribution issues. Um, I bring books typically like to places like independent bookstores, even just because it's hard for them as well to stock the books when there's little distribution. So I bring the books and I put them on consignment just so that they are on the shelves. Yeah, and um, a lot, I know Skylight does it. I know BookSoup, where I also work, does it. Like, a lot of independent bookstores have consignment programs. So, like, that's definitely something to keep in mind for yeah. distribution. Well, you have to buy the books. Uh, say a little more about that. Yeah, the author buys the books. Well, so the author will will have the book. Like generally, you'll get some copies through your distribute uh, through your publisher, or you know, yeah, you'll buy the book, right. and then you'll have like a box of them, and you ideally go. Ideally, it costs, right? Yeah, yeah, ideally it costs. Yeah, like I know at, at Book Soup, it's you put five books into consignment for ninety days, and you know, they do, and I'm sure they have a very similar program here. Um, so yeah, you buy the books. But- 
Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing that I learned when I signed the third contract. I was only given, tw I think I signed, I, I said I would get 12 copies. And for some reason in my mind, I was like, okay, whatever, 12 copies. But, you know, you're giving them to people, like you're giving them to important people who might talk about it somewhere. You're giving it to the friend that helped you write it. You're giving it. So then I suddenly had no copies, and I basically had to, like, break down and beg my publisher, like, please send me some more copies because I know that I'm going to be doing stuff between now and July and I, I need to have copies with me. It's hard for books and of course they understand and luckily I have publishers who are willing to you know, go that extra mile, put out the extra money to make sure that I have copies on me. Yeah. I just want to ask, I was offered a deal where I had to buy 200 copies of the book and I would not be told about the promotion they would do for it until I signed the deal. Oh. And so I used to do it. No. Bad that's deal. Good. Yeah, that yeah, sounds like no. you, made, you made the right call. Yeah. Uh, uh, is that usual and customary? Usual and customary? No, no, it's not. No, no, you absolutely not. To, you shouldn't yeah. have to put out any money. Ideally, yeah. you're not putting out but any you money. Books, right? Well, I bought books after the book had been published when I was desperate. I once, it's like I paid like $4 a book. Uh -huh. Yeah. And with my first book, I, I, had the opportunity to buy copies of it at cost. It was a very small publisher, and I did that, but it wasn't required. Like, the difference right. between, like, right. requiring you to buy a certain number, like, that seems like the only way, reason there in, yeah, is if you buy the book yourself. They were at cost. Yeah. It, yeah, so, like, you, if you should have the option to buy it, but you shouldn't be required. Right, right. You guys think one, two more questions? Yeah. yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Do you guys want to talk at all about the, the book, and the packaging of the book itself? Cover decisions, hard covers, soft covers, stuff like that. How those things, how those sure. get made, how uh, As I, I mentioned earlier, the the first book I had no control over at all. They chose the artwork, uh, and they made those decisions that I, uh, including the dimensionality of the book, right, purse size. It's, it was called. Uh, with this, <laughs> uh, with uh, with Rare Bird, there was more involvement. Uh, uh, the the question of hardcover versus paperback. Uh, there used to be a requirement, really, that in order to be reviewed widely or at, at, at major review um, uh, sources, you had to be out on a hardcover. That's changing, though. I think yeah. increasingly, yeah. you see LA Times, New York Times, all the trade reviews will re review paperback. So I don't know that those distinct that distinction exists anymore. Uh, what are the advantages? Uh, well. There is this advantage. If your book is out on hardcover first and you struggle, I'm, I'm struggling. I, you know, it's it's hard. Uh, my book hasn't been widely reviewed, and uh, you know, I'm working hard. My press is working hard to get it out there. If there is a paperback, I don't know that there will be, but if there is a paperback, there is the hope and the chance that it would have a different kind of life. Mm -hmm. So that's one benefit. If you're going to tear it from hardcover to paperback, I don't think it's any more about the reviewing. It's just about that second chance you might get and a different promotional angle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That made me think of something else, and I'll speak to that, but that made me think, too, of something that small presses up against bigger presses with in terms of reviews and stuff is that, like, there's a lot of things that you don't know until you have the small press book, like, oh, a lot of these places that are reviewing, big places that are reviewing, require you to have an actual galley, like a hard galley, not a PDF. They will not accept that. 
I had my first two presses, I only had PDF galleys, and also, you know, that shit ends up like that ends up getting like um, you can get it in the internet. Like somebody grabs it somehow, and like now your PDF, your book is for free out there, and it's horrible. But um, but basically, that was another downside. Was like, oh, okay, so it's not going to get reviewed in a lot of places because my publisher can't afford to make hard copies. And this was so my third book was the first one where he could afford to send out galleys, but also you have to do it like three months or to six months before publication. And we're often on a totally different timeline than regular publishing. So then it doesn't get reviewed in a lot of these big places that you want reviews in. Um, my personal feeling is that I, I don't want any of my books to start out hardcover. I do not understand it. As a person who struggles to buy books and like I have a book budget every month, I cannot afford to buy people's hardcovers. So I have to wait a year until they're out in paperback to support them. And I and I feel like that sucks. Mm -hmm. So I personally don't like to have hardcover. My first publisher, for whatever reason, does like a limited edition hardcover and charges like $10 more for it. And it's kind of cool. It's nice to have a hardcover, but it, for him it was like 99 copies will be hardcover. And I, I don't really know what that was about. But I've got a couple, and it's nice. But I want to make my books as accessible as possible. And there's a price point difference. So I'm going to try and make it the, the paperback. I think that um, as far as marketing goes, I kept getting compared to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, oh, even though I wasn't writing any magical realism. Um, and then another writer I kept getting compared to was Sandra Cisneros for some reason. I mean, aesthetically, like nothing uh, common. And I think a lot of that is a tendency of the publishing world to, you know, they, they see a Spanish last name and they think, well, he's, you know, he's writing, you know, like this or in that tradition or in that vein. And, and even when the book came, when my first book came out, you know, even the, the reviews would use words like magical. Right, and there's there's nothing really magical about anything of what I've written in my first book or my second book, and and then with my second book, one thing that you know I I don't I think I've grown I've developed a really thick skin, um, and with my second book, one of the things that really pissed me off was one of the, the I don't pay t I don't pay attention to reviews, but one of the reviewers I think it was Publishers Weekly said that they got they were sort of upset that my character in my second book because it's about a young man who leaves um, Mexico during the late 20s and ends up in Hollywood um, and ends up becoming the, the Latin lover of a fictional film studio in Hollywood during the, the, the transition from the silent films to the talkies. Um, and he escapes Mexico. There's a, there was a really bloody civil war in Mexico um, between the church and the state. It was called the Cristero Rebellion. And one of the reviewers said something like, I really wish that, that the author would have had his character stay in Mexico and fight rather than um, pursuing like a selfish, like a, you see, I call it like a selfish dream of, of wanting to be an actor. And it, it really irked me because cause I think that one of the things that I, I consistently found is this, this idea that if you're, you know, if you're a Latino or a Mexican-American writer, um, you don't have the license to be able to write complicated characters, right? And I, and I think oftentimes, because the publishing world is very East Coast-centric, I think there's a certain perception about what Latinos are and aren't, um, especially Mexican-Americans and Chicanos, right? Because we're just not there. 
So there's this perception of us, and and I think that if you don't fit that, then um, it it pisses people off because you go against their sort of idea. So I was constantly, constantly having to um, correct people, you know, and when they'd say, like, your book reminds me of, have you read, you know, like, Water for Chocolate? Like, (laughs) nothing like it, but thanks. Um, So I think a lot of it is also marketing. I think a lot of it is... um, you know, and the older I get, the harder it is to do this, but like sort of instructing people on how to read you, right? Instructing people on, on, on how, to, how to read your work, instructing publishers on how to like, how to take in your stuff. And, you know, I was taught in graduate school that you write your shit, you write it, and either people get it or they don't. And that's kind of where I am right now. <laughs> Did we answer your question? I sound so cynical. I know. I'm sorry. That's right. No. I'm not. I'm actually a very happy person. <laughs> I think that's about all the time we have. Um, thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.